artistic programs and dramaturg here at the ART, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to our conversation this evening about six and the 16th century. I'm joined tonight uh, by a very special guest. Uh, Rami Targoff is professor of English, co-chair of Italian studies, and director of the Mandel Center for, hum for the Humanities at Brandeis University, where she's been teaching since 2001. Uh, she's the author of four books, Common Prayer, John Donne, Body and Soul, Posthumous Love, and Renaissance Woman, The Life of Vittoria Colonna. She's also done the first translation into English of Vittoria Colonna's love poetry entitled Sonnets of Womanhood, which will be published next year. She's the recipient of fellowships from the John Simon Guggen Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, the Wissenschaftsschule zu Berlin, and the American Academy in Rome. And she's currently working on a new book, Shakespeare's Sisters, a group biography of four women writers who lived in the late 16th and early 17th century in England. So welcome, Rami. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. Thank you for having me. Is this on? Can yes. you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Rami and I will talk for a little while. Um, and then a little over halfway through, we'll open it up and take any questions that you might have. And we have two runners. Sean, do you want to raise your hand? Sean over there has a microphone. And Robert, where is Robert? Somebody else? <laughs> Robert is back there. Uh, we'll have a microphone as well. And if you have a question, please just raise your hand, even if you think you have a loud voice. It's difficult to hear each other uh, in this house. And a microphone will come to you. Uh, so, Ramey, uh, I was wondering if we could just start by talking a little bit about the production. I know you've seen it a couple times now. Uh, as somebody who has... Uh, written extensively on the 16th century. Could you just share your overall responses to the production and if there were any scenes, characters, moments that resonated for you in particular? Sure. Um, I've seen the play twice. I could actually almost see it every night. It's just a kind of contagious thing and I even liked it better the second time than the first and that says something about it. I think for many of us, maybe for all of us, what's so thrilling about this show is that it gives voice to these women who have been in different ways overlooked. Some of them have been obviously uh, more prominently featured in histories, but the histories that most of us learned about the Reformation, about the 16th century, about Henry VIII, have always focused on the men. They've been written by the men. Uh, they recount the stories of the men. And the women have always been sort of ancillary, you know, minor characters in the primary drama, which has been political, religious, military history. And so to see a play that just entirely excludes Henry, he's barely even mentioned, um, it's thrilling. And, and I, I think in one of the reasons maybe this is appealing to many of us right now is that we're dealing with a, a supreme leader who um, also has, uh, has a bad history on, on some of these fronts. And so there's something just incredibly liberating about seeing these six women, and I think the sheer number of wives is part of the appeal, uh, hearing their stories. In terms of the particulars of the production, uh, Ryan and I were talking about this a little bit, I, I love all of them, and, and if I had to vote, I, I, well, I won't tell you uh, who I'd vote for. But I was completely taken aback by Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves is someone who is not even a paragraph in the textbook of this period. I mean, she really gets half a sentence. She was married to Henry for six months. Uh, and 
the poor thing thought she'd consummated the marriage because he kissed her goodnight. So she was really hadn't learned anything about <laughs> what it meant to be uh, seduced by Henry VIII. And here in this production, first of all, the actor playing her, they're all fabulous, but she's just full of amazing energy. She's an incredible dancer. Uh, but she captures this sort of insouciant spirit that it turns out is entirely true. I mean, based on this production, I started reading more and more about Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves was the happiest rejected woman in the history of <laughs> womankind. She had a ball. Um, she just, you know, took the money, set herself up in this palace, refused to go home to Germany where she had an incredibly strict mother and a difficult brother, and really stayed in England for around 30 years. She was dancing with Henry's next wives at balls. Henry apparently went to bed, but the queens were still dancing. So I thought that she was the sort of great character rescued from history for me. And outlived everybody as And well. outlived everybody. By, she outlived Henry by 10 years and, and uh, Catherine. Parr only lived uh, a, uh, three years, I think, after, after, uh, after Henry. So yeah, she lived the longest. Well, let's go back. You mentioned um, writings about the queens. Could, could we talk a little bit about how we know what we know about uh, the wives of Henry VIII and um, how they've been represented in literature and in history and who was writing that literature and history? Sure. So most of the sources we have from the 16th century are historical chronicles uh, written by contemporary historians and then diplomatic reports. So there are lots of letters. Um, uh, there was a Spanish ambassador who was recounting everything that was going on. There were Venetian ambassadors at different moments as well. But we have basically historical records written by men about the events going on at court. We have some personal letters from some of the queens and actually the the letter that um, is the basis for Catherine Parr's song in the show is an actual authentic document. And there are a bunch of other letters, Catherine of Aragon, some of her letters. So we have, we have a couple, a handful of letters here and there from the women. And those are the only sources for their actual, their own voices, for their own experiences, are the letters that they wrote. And as I say, these are, these are a very small number. So, most of what we have uh, from, this, from the period were chronicles, a particular guy named Raphael Hollenshed's Chronicles of England, which was the source for all of Shakespeare's history plays. Um, Shakespeare you know, used some other sources as well, but the primary source. And then in terms of, you know, there were early biographies written. There was a, actually a biography of Anne Boleyn written in the 1580s, uh, very sympathetic biography, partisan. Uh, everything really depended on which side of the Protestant-Catholic divide you were on in terms of how you looked at Anne Boleyn. Shakespeare depicted two of these queens in his play Henry VIII, uh, which is one of his very last, if not his last play. And that ultimately is a play meant to celebrate the birth of Princess Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth. Therefore, you would think Anne Boleyn would be sort of his central heroine as the mother of Elizabeth, and Catherine of Aragon would be probably slighted, but as always with Shakespeare, he, he makes things much more complicated. And in fact, in Shakespeare's play, Catherine of Aragon is just sublime. She's incredibly heroic, a wonderful, strong character given all of the good soliloquies. And Anne Boleyn is actually not so, not so lovable. She's, uh, she's very hypocritical. She's manipulative. She's, she's flirtatious. Everyone is sort of wanting to sleep with her. So that's, that's an interesting thing to think about because this is what 
you know, Elizabeth was dead by the time Shakespeare wrote the play. It was in the early 1610s. But that's what the legacy would have been on stage uh, in the period. Well, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, Queen Elizabeth, because when we think of the 16th century, we may think of Henry VIII, but Elizabeth ruled for four over four decades, you know? And um, as Antonia Fraser has written in her book on the Six Wives of Henry VIII, one of the great ironies of history is that this king, Henry VIII, who was so determined to have a son, had a child, who, but it was a daughter, who ended up bringing glory to the Tudor dynasty. Could you talk a little bit about why Henry was so determined to have a son and how his two daughters, Mary and then Elizabeth, went on to become um, the, the, the reigning queen? Yeah, so first of all, it's really interesting to think that Henry's three surviving children all ruled England, uh, Prince Edward and then Mary Tudor and, and Elizabeth. As you say, Elizabeth ruled for 44 years, so she was the, the most successful monarch. And Henry, you know, did everything possible. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that maybe gets a little bit occluded in the show by focusing so much on the women is just Henry's really um, driving motivation to have a son. I mean, that's, he, could, he had plenty of lovers. He had an illegitimate, he had probably many illegitimate children, but he had one illegitimate son whom he recognized as his son. But he needed to have a legitimate male heir, which he then did have with Jane Seymour's son, Edward. Having one man child in this period was not nearly enough uh, in terms of child mortality. Childhood, excuse me, mortality was extremely high. The chances that your child was going to survive to adulthood were, you know, historians give different estimates, but they weren't necessarily even 50%. So having the one son was just getting started for him. Now, why he wanted to have a male child, which was his obsession, and in fact, Anne Boleyn, right before he decided to kill Anne Boleyn, she had a miscarriage. Uh, she had several miscarriages, but she had a miscarriage of a, of a male child. And it's interesting just to speculate, if that child had lived, what would have happened? Uh, the whole history of England would have been different. But with the death of that child, he felt determined that this was not going to work and that then led to, you know, to her, her being accused of treason and so forth. But had that child lived, you know, who knows. The, the first ruling female monarch in English history was Mary, so the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. There was this sort of weird moment in British history in the 12th century when a Queen Matilda, you know, there was a, a civil war over who was going to rule, and there was a, a, a brief period in which one Matilda uh, declared herself queen or was declared queen, but it didn't, it didn't last. So there, has n there had been no precedent for a woman ruling England, and Henry was absolutely, you know, centrally obsessed with continuing his legacy. This was his main purpose in life. So the idea that you know, his, remember, for those of you who, who will remember the end of Richard III, Shakespeare's Richard III, um, Richmond, who is his father, you know, basically usurps the throne. It's already a deviation from, from the Tudors had no prior rule. So Henry wasn't nearly so secure as one might think. His family, he was only first generation king. And the idea that he was gonna leave um, several daughters whose mothers had been alternatively beheaded or divorced and so forth as his legacy was absolutely not okay for him. 
Well, since, since we're talking about the children, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth, could we talk a little bit about what their relationships were like, not just with their mothers, but with the other queens as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, when, when Catherine of Aragon was, uh, was sort of pushed out after the divorce, and she was not exactly under house arrest, but she was in confinement in one of his palaces, she was actually not allowed to communicate with Mary. She never saw Mary again, her daughter. And uh, some secret letters were apparently exchanged between them. Mary was declared illegitimate because she was the daughter of incest, since Henry's uh, marriage to Catherine had been annulled on grounds of incest. So Mary was um, kicked out from court as well. And it was only when Jane Seymour, wife number three, uh, came in, and Jane was a fervent Catholic and felt pity on Mary, that she actually brought Mary back and actually convinced Henry to, to take her in. And Henry, I can't remember if it was immediately or in the next couple of years, set Mary up at court and gave her a full household of her own, and we'll probably talk about what that meant. So it was Jane Seymour who brought Mary, the, the child Mary, back in. It was actually Catherine Parr who resuscitated completely Elizabeth, who was also the, the daughter of a queen who had been eliminated. So she wasn't doing so well. She had been also in a kind of country house exile. And Catherine Parr adored these children, which is really interesting. Catherine Parr didn't have children of her own. Um, Mary was already uh, fully grown, but Edward and Elizabeth lived with Catherine. She was their guardian, even after Henry's death, she wanted to take care of them, and she, she lost the guardianship of Edward, of the prince, but she actually won the guardianship of, of Elizabeth. One of the horrible ironies, and it goes with this whole story, is that she had fought so hard, Catherine Parr, our last queen, had fought so hard uh, for Elizabeth, and then when she brought Elizabeth into her home where she had remarried Thomas Seymour, Thomas Seymour either raped her or attempted to rape her. So the sort of pattern of male violence was actually continuing in that, in that house. Uh, Thomas Seymour was sneaking into Elizabeth's bedroom, apparently, all the time, un unannounced. So there was, there was sort of no way to keep her entirely safe. And what, as you mentioned, Mary was the first reigning queen of England. What challenges did she face in that role? And, and what challenges did Elizabeth, as the second queen of England, face in, those, in that role? Well, Elizabeth learned a lot from the example of her half-sister uh, about what not to do, most importantly, not to marry. And, you know, uh, <laughs> there's, you know when, I, when I came out the first time from seeing this play, I thought, I get it at a level that I had never gotten it before. Um, why Elizabeth never, never married. You know, I mean, just, just what it meant to refuse to enter into this entire thing. So Mary had many suitors. She was actually the most sought after princess in Europe at a certain point, once she'd been brought back in. And she ended up marrying Philip of Spain, the son of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was a fervent Catholic. And, you know, there were attempts to take her off the throne from the first day she was named queen, even before there was the, the famous nine-day queen, Jane Seymour. Uh, excuse me, Jane Grey, Lady Jane Grey, who was a Protestant and was put on the throne by various factions who didn't want England to return to Catholicism. So Mary Tudor brought back the Catholic Church, uh, much to the dismay of the Protestants who'd been ruling under Edward, under uh, 
King Edward, who was taken over, his whole rule was taken over by, by pretty hardcore Protestants. And, you know, Mary had a really tough time. I mean, she was, she was always under some kind of threat. There were plots against her and against her rule for her entire, her entire reign. When Elizabeth came to the throne, she had suitors also for around 20 years she was entertaining suitors, but she, you know, would sort of lure them in and then reject them one after another. And she made famous pronouncements about being married to England, that England was her husband. And, you know, we've, we've I'm sure, know more about that than about some of these queens. But she clearly learned that marriage was a really dangerous thing. And Mary, of course, daughter of Catherine of Aragon, was fervently Catholic, as you said. Let's back up a little bit and talk about religious turmoil in the 16th century in Europe and in England as well, and how the stories of the uh, six wives reflect that turmoil. And I'm thinking specifically of the uh, annulment of the marriage between Catherine of Aragon and, and Henry VIII. Yeah, so, so as the one thing we all know about this story is that, you know, the Protestant Reformation occurred as a result of this divorce, and that's a simplification, the Protestant Reformation, excuse me, in, in England, England's uh, break from Rome. What is much less clear is, and, and really is very murky as these queens go on, is how each of these marriages brought the, the church and brought the king, sort of, if we think of it as, you know, from the left to the right, just he was swaying all the time. So Henry really was never a Protestant. Um, there was nothing particularly interesting to Henry about Protestantism. He wasn't uh, keen on it. What he wanted was the divorce, and he also wanted power, both of which were effected by breaking away from Rome. And depending on who the queen was um, and who his counselors were at any time, England really wasn't solidly Protestant until Edward came to the throne. Uh, at age 15 or 16, uh, you know, in, in, the, in 1553. So if we run through very quickly, Catherine of Aragon was a, was a fervent Catholic. Uh, she was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabel of Spain. She was, you know, very, very pious and, and impressively so. And her response to the proposed annulment was, you know, one of, of righteous uh, uh, outrage. Anne Boleyn was pretty seriously Protestant. She had spent most of her childhood in and out of um, Protestant courts in Europe and had been exposed to Luther very early on. Jane Seymour was Catholic, not sort of as far, you know, extreme Catholic as, as the Spanish princess, Catherine, but she was Catholic. Uh, Anne of Cleves was actually sort of not committal. Um, she was it's not entirely clear. She was sort of flexible, we could say. Uh, but what was important about her was her political power, or the political power that her brother represented, uh, which was to protect Henry against the, the alliance of France and Spain. So, so in effect, it was a Protestant German party, even though she wasn't such a strong Protestant. And then Catherine Howard actually was Catholic again, although there were Protestants in her family. The final queen, Catherine Parr, was the, the most fervent and the most serious Protestant and was actually being sort of persecuted by those around Henry for her Protestantism. They couldn't quite get at her, but they um, killed one of her uh, good friends, Anne Askew, 
for heresy, and they were trying to find heretical books, which would mean Luther, you know, Calvinist, uh, no, not Calvinist, excuse me, Lutheran treatises, um, early Reformation treatises in her library. And she was nearly arrested, right? Yes, she was. Catherine Parr. Yeah. yeah. Um, could, we, could we talk a little bit about life at court for the queen, for women and um, uh, the ladies-in-waiting and for the queens? What was, what was daily life at court like? Uh, for these women in the, in, the, in the living conditions and their relationship with the king? What, what was it like for them? Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting topic because when you think about the queen at court, one possibly could imagine lots of interaction with the king on a daily basis. In fact, the queen had an entirely separate household. She didn't live anywhere near the king. She had hundreds of servants. Um, you know, male and female servants, doctors, you know, stewards, butlers, cooks, horsemen, and so on, who were just serving her. She would sleep with other women in her room, uh, I mean, except for the occasions when the king would, would beckon her to him. But it was a very separate sphere. She had musicians that belonged to her. She had, you know, a whole full staff. So she was entirely separate. And the women in her inner circle, uh, the, they called, there were several levels, there was a hierarchy, but the, the, the gentlewomen or ladies of the privy chamber were the aristocratic women around her. And then there were maids of honor who were the unmarried women. And those women, uh, of our six queens, we could do an incredibly complicated, you know, overlapping diagram of each one served the other one. So, you know, Anne Boleyn was one of Catherine of Aragon's ladies in waiting. Jane Seymour was Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon's ladies in waiting. Uh, Catherine Howard came in to work for Anne of Cleves, and so on. And actually, Catherine Parr <clears throat> was in the household of Princess Mary, who had her own full staff. So these women were all intimately connected to each other, and they did everything for the queen. You know, it was a great honor to wipe the queens behind. So, you know, there was a person whose job it was to do that. Um, that wouldn't have been one of the aristocratic ladies. Those were the, the, paid, the paid maids. But the aristocratic women would entertain the queen. They ate separately, meaning the king and queen. The, the queen, it was considered unseemly for the queen to be seen eating. So she ate with her women. She only ate with her husband if it was a, 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 a big event of some kind, but she took her meals. And the descriptions we have from the period of what it meant to get dressed in the morning, if you were a queen, boggles the mind. It took hours, literally hours, to get dressed and have your cosmetics done. They were grinding fresh cosmetics for certain concoctions every morning. Um, hundreds of pins were used to put the dress on because they would cover, there were lots of undergarments and, and petticoats that were stiff and then the dresses would be pinned on top of them, and then the hair, and I mean, it was just an endless, an endless operation. So, um, so it was a very interestingly separate um, woman's sphere. There really wasn't a lot of interaction with the men. Since, since we're talking about dress for a moment, did you, did, were there, are there any parallels between the costumes that we saw on stage and <laughs> Tudor era, Tudor era dress, or any, any parallels between the, the pop concert competition world of six and, and life at court? Well, 
<laughs> I mean, I don't think these outfits would have even counted as their, like, you know, underwear um, that these women were, were wearing. I was trying to see, one of the things that happened when Anne of Cleves, among her many problems when she got to court, was that her fashion was very German. And I was imagining a kind of German doll. I don't know what the idea behind this particular outfit was, but it had a slightly German inflection, I thought. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the costuming here would, 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 not have, would not have flown at court, <laughs> to say the least. Anne Boleyn was the most famous fashion uh, setter at court, and that's because she came from France. And it's so interesting that even in the early 16th century, France was held up as the most fashionable place to come from, whereas Germany was just a total fashion disaster. Um, but Anne Boleyn introduced French fashion at court. And each queen sort of had her own style. So Jane Seymour was known for dressing in a traditional English model, um, and so on. So each of them had a, had a sort of different reputation that way. So since we just mentioned Anne of Cleves, can we talk about Hans Holbein? Uh, the <laughs> painter Hans Holbein. I think, I think my favorite song in the show is The House of Holbein. It's yes. my mom's favorite song in the show. Um, uh, could, could you talk a little bit about the role that Holbein played at court, how he came to court, and, and the role of portraiture in the 16th century? Sure. I don't, I don't know a lot about Holbein, but I do know about his presence in England. And what's interesting is that it was actually Anne Boleyn who was his great patron at court. Um, she commissioned him to make presents for the king for her. We only have a, a, a drawing, a sketch that he did of Anne Boleyn, not, not a full painting. We have paintings of, I guess, of, of Catherine, um, of Aragon, of Jane Seymour, and then famously, of, of course, of Anne of Cleves. And the story behind that, which, which this uh, production, this play, really does so incredibly well, is that there were rumors Henry was looking for you know, his next wife, wife number four, and at this point, women were a little bit reluctant <laughs> across the continent to get involved. Um, one woman, I think it was Anne of Milan or Christine of Denmark, I can't remember, said, if I had two heads, I'd volunteer for the job, but <laughs> I can't really afford to come. So anyway, so he was having a hard time, and so he got down to like his B list, basically, which included Anne of Cleves, who had a reputation for not being a great beauty. So Holbein was sent, in effect, to photograph her, to get us a picture of her and bring it back to court. And I don't know how Holbein survived this uh, debacle. Um, I don't know if you've seen the painting. It's, I think, on some of your promotional material. But it's a lovely painting of Anne of Cleves, a rather beautiful painting. Actually, to my taste, she's more beautiful than, than um, Catherine Howard, whom he painted. But in any case, Henry liked the painting well enough and uh, then was shocked, and he said he was repulsed. That's an actual quote from Henry, that he was repulsed when he actually met Anne of Cleves. So this obviously gets to the fact that portraiture in the period was not meant to be photography. It was meant to be <laughs> flattering. This is why when Cromwell says the next century, Oliver Cromwell during the Civil War, he wants to be painted warts and all, that was a dramatic thing, an unusual thing to say that people 
you know, Queen Elizabeth, when she was well into her uh, late 50s, still wanted to be represented as a 25-year-old. Catherine of Medici had Leonardo, you know, rejected Leonardo's portrait because, you know, she said she looked, you know, whatever, 45 when she wanted to look 15. So, so portraiture <laughs> was a way, and, and it was exchanged, you know, as sort of diplomatic gifts and cards Portraiture was meant to be flattering, and so Henry should have known, of course, this painting was going to be uh, was going to be a slight exaggeration. But Holbein was at court for quite some time. He had come to England, um, having left uh, a religious situation in um, in Antwerp or in Belgium, where he had pretty much been chased out by the Protestants, who who didn't want religious art anymore. And so he turned to portraiture as a kind of second choice career, but ended up being the most famous portraitist of, the, of, the, uh, of Henry's court. And how, how did Anne of Cleves get out of her marriage through divorce rather than like something more drastic? And, and Anne Boleyn, of course, we know was beheaded. Can we talk a little bit about how, how Anne, of, Anne of Cleves' marriage ended? Yeah, so with, both with Catherine of Aragon and with Anne of Cleves, Henry had no treasonable charge against either of them. So that's the difference between Anne Boleyn and the beheaded queens, Anne Boleyn and Catherine uh, Howard. The difference between Catherine of Aragon and Anne of Cleves is that Catherine of Aragon was married to Henry for 20 years, more than 20 years, and had a child with him, had had miscarriages, had had a long, complicated marriage, uh, and didn't want to back down. And she was formidable. Anne of Cleves had been married for a couple months had had a few goodnight kisses, and when presented with the option, she said, fine. Um, she didn't, I don't think she wanted to be married necessarily to him any more than he wanted to be married to her. I think this was an extraordinary opportunity for Anne of Cleves, it turns out, to get, she took the deal, in other words. She took the deal. She got something like 8,000 pounds a month. Uh, excuse me, a year, but that was an extravagant amount of money, a wonderful palace, lots of staff. And she, you know, for a woman in early 16th century England to have that kind of independence was really amazing. So, so when presented with the option to cancel the wedding, she originally, I think, resisted, but then she came round really, really quite quickly and happily took off and and then settled there and was, was perfectly content, it seems. So that's how she avoided uh, more trouble. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about uh, educational opportunities for women in the 16th century, for, the, for these queens in particular, but for women in the 16th century, because if we think just about Catherine of Aragon, Aragon she spoke many languages, Catherine Parr spoke many languages and published as well. Could you say a few words about what existed in terms of educational opportunities for women in the 16th century. Yeah, so here we're looking at royal women who had the best possible education that any girls could have in the period. The literacy rate for women in England in the 16th century has been, it's, it's not, it's very hard to determine. And it's actually determined by whether women could sign their names. And lots of women could read and not sign their names. There's a big distinction between reading and writing. That said, the literacy rate has been given by historians at 3%. So, so we're dealing with a really small percentage of, of the population who, and by the way, men, men, men's literacy is only between 10 and 13%. So we're not talking about a very literate population. But the royal women were educated 
more or less like their brothers. So they had very good education. That's partially because the tutors were brought into the house to teach them. Um, but it's also because there was a chance they'd be ruling in some capacity or another. So Catherine of Aragon, who was a princess, you know, when she first came to England, she and Arthur, Henry's brother, spoke Latin to each other. It was their only common language. She was quite well educated. She spoke French. She learned to speak English. Um, Anne Boleyn was educated, not nearly so well as Catherine of Aragon because she wasn't royal, but she had served as one of these fancy ladies' maids to, um, to Margaret of Austria and to, and to Queen Claude of France. And that court was very, very sophisticated. That's the same court where Marguerite of Navarre, one of the great writers of the 16th century, uh, who was the, the sister-in-law of, of Claude, where she lived. So Anne Boleyn was writing letters in French to her father when she was a teenager. So we know that she was quite well-educated. Actually, Jane Seymour and Catherine Howard were not particularly well-educated. Um, they could read, uh, but it's not clear how well they could write. Those were both women who came from sort of mid-level nobility, but not, not, not royal families. The really extraordinary talent of this group of six is the last one, is Catherine Parr, who also was not an aristocrat. I mean, she came from a noble family, but not of great distinction. Her mother was a sort of early feminist and set up a, a school in her household for, for Catherine and for her sister, Mary. And those girls were educated in chemistry, in math, in all sorts of medical. They, they learned a lot of uh, medical treatments. She spoke French, Spanish. Excuse me, she learned Spanish when she was queen. She took on the project of learning Spanish when she was queen. But she spoke French, Italian, and Latin quite well. And then she was the first published queen in English history. She actually wrote and published a book in 1545 while she was queen, a book um, of, of meditations and prayers, but with her name on the title page. So that was an extraordinary thing to do. And then um, in an act of unbelievable uh, virtuosity, Princess Elizabeth, who was 12, took her stepmother's book of prayers that Catherine Parr had written in English and translated it into French, Italian, and Latin, three languages for her father's New Year's gift. So that was an amazing, an amazing thing. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna ask you one more question and then we'll, we'll open it up to the audience uh, for questions. If, if the Queen saw six today, what do you think they would think of this production? Well, they'd have to love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's just irresistible, but it would be, I mean, the, lev the, the level of shocks uh, are so many that I can't even <laughs> begin. I mean, one thing I was thinking about was the, the absolute pinnacle of beauty in this period was complexion. Really, complexion was sort of way up here and then other things were ranked below. So, one of the biggest problems with Anne of Cleves, for example, was that she was a little bit olive skinned. And the rituals, the morning rituals I was describing that took so long, lots of that time was just spent on these whitening solutions. They were obsessed with white skin. And this is something Shakespeare gets at in his, in his sonnets um, when, when dark 
uh, beauty has come in as this sort of total revolution. Anne Boleyn actually, interestingly, had somewhat darker skin, but that didn't stop her. But in any case, I was thinking about the racial um, diversity of this cast and what it would mean for Catherine of Aragon to see herself represented by a black woman. What it would, I mean, that you know, it would have been. I mean, the clothes would have been the biggest shock. But also, I think the, um, I think the, the sheer diversity uh, would have been quite startling. But what I think is really wonderful about the show and actually reflected in some of the history, and I think the queens would have appreciated it, with certain exceptions, like Catherine of Aragon had no love for Anne Boleyn. But actually, these women act, were not enemies entirely and had some friendships across these relationships. So there was a kind of sympathy among them for what they were going through that, you know, I mean, Anne of Cleves most spectacularly was friends with the, the last two, but they were helping one another in a way that is surprising, and I think, I think they would have appreciated it. There's also an interesting age difference. Um, Catherine of Aragon was born in 1485, and I guess the youngest queen was actually um, Catherine Howard, who was born around 1520, we're not exactly sure. So that's a 35-year difference between them. And so I think also just the sort of uh, generational um, uh, differences that are being erased on stage would probably be kind of shocking. But I, I go back to where I began. I think the queens, <laughs> I feel confident the queens would enjoy this play because I haven't met anyone who hasn't. Okay, well, I want to thank Ramey so much for coming thank tonight. You. Thank you all for staying. <clears throat> Thank you again. Shake CP.